think I've gotten much better at accepting how much I can get done in a day. And when you do that, you don't feel like you're constantly behind. Like you feel like you're playing offense on your day versus defense. So I think just be like really honest about what you're going to get done in a given day and adjust your team and expectations around that. After climbing the corporate ladder at Victoria's Secret, Michelle Cordero Grant realized that there was room to build a whole new conversation around lingerie, one that put the community first and tapped into the power of social media. After gaining 90,000 email subscribers overnight through a viral refer a friend campaign, Michelle launched Lively and the rest is history. Coming up, You'll hear how Michelle first fell in love with lingerie and her experience climbing the corporate ladder at Victoria's Secret. Realizing that there was room to build a new conversation around lingerie that put the social community first. The essential questions she asked herself before launching Lively and her experience taking her first investment from her manufacturer and what that allowed her to do why being a mother gave her the strength to keep going, and the realization that if she can create a human, she can create a company. The secrets behind Lively's viral refer a friend campaign and Michelle's greatest learning from her launch, the biggest manufacturing mistake that they ever made and how she was able to solve it. Her experience selling her business, both logistically and emotionally, and why she knew she had found the right partner the importance of her team and investing in them. And finally, Michelle's biggest goal for 2021. This is the Entrepreneurista Podcast presented by Socialfly. It's the best business meeting you'll ever have with must-hear real-life looks at how leading women in business are getting it done. And what it takes to build and grow a successful company. It's beyond the gram. With no filters, no limits, and plenty of surprises. Michelle, we are so excited to sit down with you over Zoom, we wish we could be in person, <laughs> and have a conversation all about your incredible business journey. You started and founded the company Lively, and you had a lot of experience in the lingerie field prior to starting your business. Can you share with us how you got started? Sure. Um, well, you know, I actually studied finance, and I thought I was going to go into business Quite frankly, I'm the daughter of two Indian immigrant parents. And so in my house, I thought it was doctor, lawyer, investment banker. And I started having internships within finance and really found that the intangible was not doing it for me. And I haphazardly found my way into an interview at Federated Merchandising Group, which owns Macy's and Bloomingdale's. Long story short, my first role there was in lingerie and in intimate apparel. And honestly, I remember crying my eyes out and saying my career was over because anyone knows when you're in fashion, you want to be in ready to wear dresses, you know, head to toe outfits. But I fell in love with the area of lingerie. I found that not only was it the one of the most profitable areas of the retail sector, it was also just for women. So I spent the tenure of my career after that with Victoria's Secret and learned, I mean, I don't have my MBA, but I basically got my retail MBA there and, you know, went from there. What was your role at Victoria's Secret? So my last role was director, senior merchant in the area of basically what's called direct to consumer now for overseeing bras. 
And how did you know that it was time to leave the corporate world to start your own business? You know, I think I realized when I was always the person skipping to work. I was the one like smiling on the subway for no reason in New York City, which is rare. And I always really prided myself on the fact that I loved my job. But after about five years, I realized that two things were happening. I wasn't wearing the product anymore because one, I just didn't connect with the brand like I thought I did. I found it to be a lot of pressure. I was trying really hard to be Candace Swapnell and it just like wasn't happening for me. <laughs> and I was, it found it exhausting mentally for me. And then two, I realized in corporate America, the women above me, the women that I looked up to, they were making a really tough choice in their life. They were choosing between their jobs and then their personal lives, which would be their spouses and their children and so forth. And I had gotten married in 2011, and that was kind of where I realized I needed to find a place where I could do both. And I also felt like there was room to start a new conversation, one that wasn't built at a, a multi-million dollar New York City tower, but one that was leveraging social community and addressing the things that I was feeling. Did you quit after you had an idea for this business or did you quit and then figure out that this is what you wanted to do? I quit and then figured it out. I knew I knew I had an itch to start something. I didn't know for sure if it would be lingerie, but I had a gut feeling that it probably would be. So I, I tell people like I crossed 14th Street. I went down to Soho, started meeting with people through my network and found myself at Thrillist Media Group where I got to hang and learn and see content and commerce in a whole different way for three years. So many of our listeners are thinking about starting businesses and they're looking for inspiration and some of those first steps. What were some of those initial steps you took when you were ready to go full steam ahead and launch the business? Yeah. I mean, one, I constantly note that time between Victoria's Secret and when I actually started Lively. I was really, I think one of the good things I did was really acknowledge the things I didn't know. So I didn't really know how a whole organization worked, having been in corporate for so long, where you see a lot of little things really, really well. So that was number one. Number two was really defining my level of risk tolerance. My daughter at the time was maybe a year and change. And, you know, my husband was in finance post the financial crisis. And I just knew I needed a foundation. Like I didn't have the stomach and the gut to bootstrap like so many incredible people out there do. So that was number two. And then number three was like, all right, if I'm going to raise capital, who do I want to bring it from? And what I thought about was, what do I actually need for this company to succeed? And I thought and learned from being in lingerie for so long, it's supply chain. Because if you're going to create a product in the area of bras that has 25 to 40 components and you want it to be awesome, fit well, and have size range, it's wildly expensive. So I took my first investment from our manufacturer. And once you got that investment, what did you do next? Then it was a little dark for a minute. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> <laughs> so I left Thrillist on a Friday and I didn't want to give myself time to doubt the decision. So I went in on Monday to this empty office, three white walls and a glass door. I was 35. It was literally on my 35th birthday when I was at Chase Bank with money in this account to start a company, which is a really weird feeling because now you're like in, like head first, in the deep end, like start spreading water. And I didn't have anybody on my team. I didn't even have a name for the brand. So I just sat at a desk 
And I started a list of everything I was terrified of. Like what were all the things that I had no idea how to do made a list and then started writing names of people who I felt like knew those areas best. And then I just started like hitting them up lunches, juices, exercise classes, whatever it was, just to make sure that they were, they had my back. It wasn't like I was like, Hey, invest or be an investor. It was just like, when I call you, can you help me? Like when I get to that step of fulfillment, customer service, digital marketing, I like, I had no clue. And I was starting a digital company. Will you help me? And then I just started going. It was literally like this idea of one foot in front of the other. Like I didn't even have a, a game plan, which is silly. I had written a business plan, but it was like over 48 hours Googling business plan for dummies. Um, <laughs> We've all done it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The, the whole concept for me was this was going to be my YOLO moment. I felt like I wanted to try it and I knew statistically it would probably fail in five years, if not definitely by 10. So I thought in my head, I'm going to give this two to three years and I'm going to give it my all and make it a utopian moment. So, so many women who are raising money for their business, you know, they have a full business plan put together. They have their pitch deck, they have their branding, and it's even hard to raise money when you have all of that together, but you were able to find this strategic investor with somewhat of a business plan, as you shared, but you didn't have all of the other pieces. So how did it work out for you? Do you have any tips to share? Why did they invest in you and believe in you and want to move forward? Yeah. I mean, one, I think the thing that people need to remember is if you're asking for an investment early in a business or pre-launch, the investment is in you. So the business plan is like nice and all, but really you're selling yourself. So, you know, what experience do you have not as critical as like, what is your grit, your hustle and your appetite to like grind and really like think differently while thinking strategically. So I really believe it came through my articulation in terms of like what I saw as the vision, as well as what I saw out in the world. And I also think just like the energy that you bring, you're bringing energy, which is like, Hey, I'm asking you for something that probably won't work, but I'm going to be the one to make it work. And so like creating that energy and that environment of like, I'm going to do this. And you, you cannot go into that room, into that meeting, unless you actually believe it. Absolutely. <laughs> sniff it out. <laughs> Did you pitch any other strategic investors or you just went to that one and it was a yes and you moved forward and went to work with them? Yeah, I had like a very magical situation where my investor, so the CEO of the manufacturing company, was looking to differentiate his business away from distribution companies. And he saw Harry's Casper Warby and was like, I have this amazing situation. Where's my startup? And I was like, great, <laughs> here I am. So it was really the fact that I was, you know, acknowledging what I wanted to do. And I do believe in manifesting. I think that that brought, that really did bring us together. Who was the first person that you hired once you started, you know, moving forward? Yeah. So it was actually Sarah Sullivan, who was our creative director still today. My vision for the brand was kind of similar. I equate a lot to being a mother because obviously, honestly, having a child was what gave me the strength and the motivation to start a company. It's like, if I can create a human, I bet I could create a company. <laughs> I love that. Um, so I said, let's not name this brand. Let's build out a vision board of what it looks like and then name her. And so I started meeting with different designers and creatives because frankly, like I know numbers and I know trend and concept of what I want to create. I don't know how to create a tech pack or draw or any of that. So I knew I needed design help. 
And I started meeting people in lingerie and quickly shifted my strategy and said, nope, I'm not going to do something different if I don't move out of this sector. So I met Sarah through, honestly, like second, two degrees of separation. She was about to have her second baby. And, you know, we were both like going through a time in our life where we're like, all right, we want to do family and we want to do business. And it was the perfect match. So started with her, then I brought on a graphic designer, Ari, who's still with us, and she just interned for us, which was magical. And then I brought on our director of brand. Take a step back to that moment when you finally launched the website. How long did that take? And what was the, what was the launch plan? Yeah, so you know, I started the concept of Brand X on August 1st, and I launched on April 1st. So that was kind of like beginning to launch day. But I often say that Lively launched in January. That's when we started our social and our focus groups and really building the community. And I think because we took a strategy of let's reach out to people on social and in real life through Airbnbs and have them build the brand with us, like have them pick the images and help us with the copy and the taglines. And so We did that. And I think a really important part of the whole story of the Lively launch is actually a month prior. So a month prior to April 1st, we did a refer a friend campaign. We saw the Harry's success. Everyone remembers when Harry's got 100,000 emails in 2011. And I was like, whoa, we need emails. That sounds really good. And so we looked at their open source code because they were kind enough to publish it. We took that and made our own refer a friend campaign and emailed 250 people on a Friday. And our goal was to get 5,000 emails a week. Well, the next morning we had 5,000. We're like, whoa, this thing's great. By that night, we had 50,000. And when we went to sleep, we had 95,000 emails. And I thought, like, definitely we were hacked. And this whole thing was just a ruse. Wait, what was the offer? So refer friends and what would you get? So it was join lively where wild hearts meet boss brains and get earned points towards your first purchase. And there was no mention, no, no one even knew how much the bras were. They didn't even know the styles. All they saw was inspired by wild hearts and boss brains and an image, <laughs> meet lively. So when we woke up on Sunday, the developers were like, Michelle, this is real. Like the servers are crashed. So forget about the refer friend campaign. It's over. It's not going to be three weeks. It's over. But you had 300,000 sessions globally, 280,000 uniques, and you garnered 133,000 emails. That was the moment the business launched. We turned on every channel of customer service and needed to learn like why. And that became the first day that we started our marketing because we were collecting what they were saying. And then those were going to be our emails on April 1st. So what was that feeling like? Like, holy shit, does this happen? Is this what's supposed to happen? Is this normal? And I remember like sitting in the car with my husband looking at the app and just being like, wow, like 90,000, 98, is this normal? I just thought that's what startup life was. It's my first go. What was the demographic of people that signed up in that first weekend? It was so vast. Like we have a Google map of all the places we touched in the world and the globe was glowing. Like Russia, Australia, the United States covered the United States. So it wasn't like this New York Cali digital thing. We were having girls from Australia email us from a high school saying, my friend in school got her dashboard and her lively email and I didn't get mine. And we're like, because it crashed, but why do you care? (laughs) Why do you think people cared so much? I think 
are cared enough. The image that we showed was the epitome of what we now call leisure. So it showed an amazing woman in a bralette, but it had feminine lace meeting an active striped sport brand and her on a fire escape in New York City, just being like her badass self with a fur coat, just not really caring about anything but how she felt. And you can see that and feel that in the imagery. I do feel like women are really moved to take action by images, Instagram. And I think the words, inspired by wild hearts and boss brains, it's pivoting on the fact that we are, as women, are vulnerable and we, we cry and we're emotional. And often we think that's a weakness, but honestly, that's passion and that's drive. And if you combine that with business, and I think people were like, yes, I get you. <laughs> But I don't know. I mean, virality is a thing that no one can explain. <laughs> and did you, did I hear correctly? You mentioned Airbnb before. Yeah. How did Airbnb play a role in, in this launch? So that image, right? The image and the words were pivotal, right? And our thesis was, well, let's test all of those pieces out because you only get very select moments to say something, show something, do something. And so we said, let's have 10 to 12 women come into an Airbnb, bribe them with wine and cheese, and said, we're building a brand, but we want you to build it with us. Come join us. And we had a group of moms, fitness people, business people, et cetera, and looked at trend lines. And it was like very informal. It was literally like, here's an image on a coffee table, write down on a post-it the first word that comes to mind. Rank these images, et cetera. But we use that to narrow very, very specifically to the ones that won. So like a great example is the word undies. We were like, panties anyone? Like, no, panties not a normal word for us to say comfortably. Underwear, they're like masculine. Undies, one, by far. <laughs> That's so interesting. What would you say was your biggest learning from the launch? I think our biggest learning was what our gut was, was community over everything. Because the community of women that came to those focus groups crystallized the content. That content then garnered the emails. But in between those focus groups and the email campaign, we also had 100 women that we met on Instagram to be our ambassadors. And you could just feel this grassroots swell happening to the point where we shipped to every state in America in 45 days with only press and organic, no paid advertising. Like that's when you know you've proven out the things you want to do, say, and show, but you found the right channel to do it. And that was our community. It sounds like everything went so smoothly, but were there any mistakes in that first month, year? <laughs> so many. Oh my gosh. I mean, starting with building the website, like QA in a website is no joke to all founders out there. Like give yourself a couple weeks to do it, but so many sleepless nights coming up to the day of launch, just making sure the site worked. Bigger mistake was thinking our inventory was going to be there on time. You know, we launched lively. Our inventory was still coming. <laughs> Number three is like, we thought our warehouse was up and running and ready for this. It wasn't like launch day, took off my stiletto boots and like ran to Secaucus and we were all packing boxes for a full week. The biggest mistake we made was we wanted our straps to be, you know, every component of lively product to be special. And we had this one beautiful, silky, satiny, super soft, stretchy strap that won in our, you know, research. Well, people started getting the bra and that strap slipped. Like they were literally readjusting their bra all day, which is like a bullet to your heart when you're literally standing up and saying, this is the product. 
had to reship them all. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. <laughs> Coming up, you'll hear how COVID-19 impacted Lively and Michelle's candid retelling of the moment that she sold her business. So we've talked about this. It's been a crazy past year. And so many of us who run businesses have had to pivot business strategies, marketing strategies. Can you share a little bit about how your business has been impacted this year and what you've done about it? Yeah, I feel like this year feels like five years in one. <laughs> like when I reflect on all the different chapters, it's been a lot. But, you know, it started with us just pausing in the end of March. So much had happened. The world was flipping on its head and we needed to just make sure everyone got home, felt comfortable and reset. We were moving into an April launch of swimwear and fashion with lace, like none of it made sense. So what we did was we went to our community and we said, let's band together. What do we need from one another? And from a content perspective, it was, how do we feel good at home? So, you know, start baking, DIY, take care of your zip, brushing your hair again. <laughs> and from a product perspective, it was loungewear, which was a fraction, like one to 2% of our business. But we quickly told our factory, pump as much loungewear out as you can and get back to bralettes like immediately. And so our business went from a full halt from a, like a data perspective to just boom, triple digits because we listened, we learned, we adjusted. And it's not that we created new product. We just looked around our store and said, there, put that in the windows, lean in and figure out the words that people needed to hear to be comfortable. And that was like, a lot is happening but you need to be comfortable while it's happening. Here we are. You successfully sold your business in 2019. So before, before COVID, what was that feeling like? And what is your role now? Yeah, so my role now, thankfully, is I'm still CEO and president of Lively. So still running this beautiful baby. I think I need Lively right now, maybe more than Lively needs me, honestly. Um, but Selling my business was also a very, very difficult decision for sure. It wasn't one that I was planning for. Our acquiring company came to us with this tremendous opportunity to talk to them. And honestly, at first I was like, what? Like, we're only getting started. We're not ready for this. But we did something really smart, which was we didn't say no, obviously. We said, let's get to know each other. So we didn't talk numbers. We actually had our first meeting and said, let's just talk about what our core values are, how we see the world, and see if those things align. So here's where the magic comes in. We go to this first meeting, me and my first investor, and we walk down Madison Avenue, and we get to the address. And I was like, this is it? And he's like, yeah. And I'm like, this is bananas. It's where him and I had first met four years prior. Exactly wow. building, two floors higher. I just got the chills. <laughs> I was like, okay, I think we should take this more seriously now. <laughs> so we went into the meeting and had an amazing conversation with Wacol, the company that acquired us. And what's interesting about Wacol is, you know, they're 40 years ahead of us, if not more, and based out of Japan. And the founder is from Japan. And the founder actually thought about, you know, women becoming more Western and what do they need? And when they're not wearing a kimono, they actually need a bra and they need a layer, a first layer underneath that fashion. And it just like the whole story just like really intrigued me. So fast forward to June, that was January. Part of the process is you have to go and meet the board and the board has to approve the acquisition because it's a public company. But in my mind, I was still like, I can't believe this is happening. Like, I love this company so much. Like, is this right? 
So I went to Kyoto. I went to Japan by myself with the two key principals of the company. And they walked me through the history of Wako. They have a beautiful museum in their company there. We started from present and worked our way back to past. And when we got back to past, the first thing on the wall was the logo that the founder of Wako drew, which I believe was maybe in 1948. And it was this beautiful watermark. And it was literally cousins to the logo we have for Lively. Wow. So it's like, okay. These signs are just following you everywhere. (laughs) Yeah. And I know it sounds hokey, but like a lot of this is just like really following the path that the world is telling you. Most of the things I've done in my life, I would never have written down as a teenager or someone in my 20s. So we went through the process. I didn't even have a banker. I was Googling like stock purchase agreement, got a 99 page legal document on the weekend of the 4th of July, like muscled through it had an amazing lawyer and we closed four years to when I got that check on my 35th birthday, I was turning 39. And this sounds like really serendipitous because of course, like selling your company is such an amazing accomplishment. But that morning I was in tears. I like, I couldn't get out of bed. It was like this baby that I had was leaving for college and I was not anywhere close to being ready to like absorb that. And I remember calling my sister-in-law and being like, I'm supposed to get on with press right now and like be at the office. And I'm just like in tears with a side ponytail. Like, what am I going to do? But I pulled it together and it took me about, honestly, a year to absorb it. What did you have to get used to after the sale? What changed? I think it's more of a mental adjustment as a founder. So, you know, from a business perspective, it was amazing. You know, our team has a 401k with matching and we have, you know, an amazing back and on finance and a warehouse. And like from a business perspective, it's incredible. From a founder mentality, you put so much grit and energy and you're literally on an adrenaline rush when you're building and running a company. And then all of a sudden it's like, whoa, we're going to be okay. (laughs) Lively is going to live well past me. We have a foundation to stand on. I don't have to like look at cash flow every, every morning like I used to, right? Like we're going to be okay. And then it shifts to but it's going to be okay without me. And then it's like, and am I okay, like still running it? Is it still good with me in front of it? You know, so you just go through this whole mental journey of adjusting because it happens so quick. And how has your role changed? What are you doing now that you weren't doing before the sale? I think I'm able to really focus more on brand and future vision, which feels good because, you know, fundraising is really time consuming as well as just making sure, you know, financially and operationally we're meeting in sync. And especially when you're a digital company, the market can fluctuate so quickly based on marketing efficiency and so forth. So now I can actually be really forward thinking in a different way and I can raise up from out of the weeds, because honestly, when you're a company that is running so fast and fundraising and like just trying to keep the lights on and do everything you need to do to keep it afloat, like you're, you just feel like you need to be in the deep end with the team. But when you feel like the house is secure, you can be like, well, where do we want to renovate? You know, what do we want to do in the front yard? And I think the biggest shift, and I think my team would probably say this as well, is I'm out of their shit. <laughs> is I'm like able to like really delegate and let them grow and build an infrastructure that's great for their careers and their journeys and overall lively. Have you had mentors along the way that have helped you? 
Yes. I was really fortunate that my board pre-acquisition were my mentors. So, you know, Harvey Sanders built and sold Nautica to VF Corporation and sits on the board of Under Armour pre-IPO. And so like a great sounding board for me. There's a couple of women that I connect with through a group called YPO that have sold companies and so forth. And one of my greatest mentors that was actually on the Lively podcast is Bobby Brown with a very similar story. Launched Bobby Brown makeup, two children, sold the company after four years and then ran it for 20 years. And so that was always something that I looked towards as a guiding light. For anyone listening who is in talks to sell their company or wants to sell their company one day, what are some of the things they should think about and lessons that you learned going through the sale? Yeah, I mean, I think number one is don't be shy. You know, really think about what you want and what you want for the business and the company and the parties involved. And be really utopian about it. Don't get sucked into, well, this is the way it is and this is what has been done. Do what you think you need and ask the questions. One other piece of advice is don't be intimidated by the process and by the legal. Like ask people to dumb it down. I'd be like, okay, so this is the sentence in legalese. Now, what does that mean to normal people? <laughs> like, what am I actually signing up for? And so like, I really picked apart and said like, okay, in this scenario, this document is telling me that here's what happened. So really like, don't be intimidated by the process. Understand it. You've been growing your business while being an incredible mother. Can you share any tips to our working mamas who are listening as to how you've been able to manage it all? Because I know I have a 19 month old and it's definitely not easy. (laughs) It's not, you know, a, a big part of the lively story was after I launched, I found out I was pregnant with my son, Jack, six weeks in, not part of the plan, but actually was really helpful in helping me delegate and push out to the team and force the company to become more efficient. But what I would say as for moms is be okay with balancing and you're going to have mom guilt and that's totally normal. But I feel like this concept of like nine to five is over. Right. And, and don't feel guilty or like try to hide it. Like I'm very honest with like, Hey, I'm making a smoothie and having lunch with my daughter right now because my team knows I'll be on at night in the morning and so forth. And also cast that shadow through your organization. You know, I want my team to know that they can do that too. They can create their own environment. If they want to work three days a week, we'll create a structure for that too. And I think the mistake that I made was for both of my babies, I didn't take maternity leave, like the way that I should have. I was always on email, on calls. I was not present. I often joke, but it's really sad that like I could tell you the sales of the week after Jack was born, but like I don't remember the pictures I have with him nursing him. And it's something I really regret. So I think people should really like make the space and the time for that moment. They're not going to get back. That's such great advice. I will share that I was just talking with my husband and saying, regardless of working or not working, I'm like, I can barely remember those first few months, no matter what. It's just like, it all goes by so fast and, and such a blur. <laughs> yeah. And when your mind is occupied with something else, yep. you're not really present. <laughs> totally. Do you have any tips for anyone who is working from home right now, taking their company remote and, and might have their kids running around in the background? <laughs> <laughs> One, like what I found with my kids when they're running around, first and foremost, is like not being like, shh, get out, da-da-da-da. like, come on, sit on my lap because they get bored in 10 seconds. <laughs> So I'll be like, join the meeting. And then they're like, all right, I'm out of here. So like 
let them be a part of it. Let them see it. I think also as women, it's really important for the young ones to see us working and like, this is what we do. And, it's, and then the other thing I would say is I always reprioritize and don't overcommit. So I think I've gotten much better at accepting how much I can get done in a day. And when you do that, you don't feel like you're constantly behind. Like you feel like you're playing offense on your day versus defense. So I think just be like really honest about what you're going to get done in a given day and adjust your team and expectations around that. How did you get to that place and how do you structure your day now? Because I share this with Courtney and vice versa all the time. You know, I overschedule myself. I book these back-to-back meetings. I say I'm not going to do it. I time block, but then someone wants to talk to me and I make an exception. Like, how do you say no and set your boundaries and stick to it? Yeah, it took me a long time, to be honest. But I went to the Oprah Vision Tour and Oprah was like, say no, like get comfortable saying no. And finally, like I heard her. <laughs> like, finally got, someone finally got through to me. Thank you, Oprah. <laughs> Thank you, Oprah. And the other thing she said too was, you know, when you're like in traffic and you're late for a meeting, you like stress and your body tightens and like you start sweating and all these things happen. She's like, well, why don't you just acknowledge the fact that you're late? Like you're late. It's over. Like there's nothing you're going to do about it. So like breathe and move on you'll get there. And so like those types of that type of mentality, like really worked for me where I'm like, yeah, I can't have a meeting at one, two, three, four, 30, four, 45, five, 15, five, 30, and give all of those people the proper respect and attention that they need. It's actually doing a disservice to both of us. So I've gotten much better at saying no, but that becomes, that only comes with trusting your team and knowing your team's going to make mistakes. And that's totally cool. It's called the learning tax. Like they're going to mess up, but if they don't mess up, they're not going to be able to do it right and do it without you. Something that I tried this year that really worked well and I want to try to do it going forward is I took the first week of the year off and I didn't, wasn't really taking off because I still worked, but it was just no meetings, only the meetings that were important to me. And it really allowed me to, to set the tone for the year. So it's going to be something that I continue to try because I just dedicated that week to myself. A hundred percent. And I think also as type A excited founders, that's who I am. When your team does mistakes, do mistakes, my knee-jerk reaction would always be like, bah, like email and like ask questions and da-da-da. And now I just like pause, take a deep breath and say, tomorrow we can address the situation, but first let's see if they figure it out on their own. So I think realizing the world's not going to implode when these things happen, (laughs) it's a new turning point. (laughs) Up next... How Michelle is looking to find a new equilibrium in 2021 and the exciting launches Lively has in the works. What does a typical day outside of work look like? Outside of work. (laughs) Outside of work. Okay. (laughs) Well, one, I do really believe in getting up and moving. So usually my children will come into our room and wake us up. I prefer to get up before them and have some tea or coffee. But recently with the winter, they're new in the waking up. And then we have breakfast. I move my body, whether that's a run. I'm really into trampolining since quarantine started and so forth. And then we usually try to do some kind of outdoor activity with our kids. Recently, like we've been working on a love painting outside in our backyard or hiking or whatever it is. We just really believe in vitamin D and fresh air for, you know, the duration of of life, not just during quarantine. And when we honestly like let the kids do their thing, my husband and I try to find like an hour together, whether that's just like 
having a quick happy hour cocktail before dinner or after dinner. But I do believe like really prioritizing the relationships that matter to you most and not always making it about the kids is, is critical. And I've really learned that importance with my marriage. And then we have family dinner, no phones. We really try to acknowledge like the best parts of our day and, and be a family of gratitude. We say the grants are glass half full. So like, where was the fun? It's actually something we do at Lively every Monday. We call Lively Moments. And then our, our kids, you know, they, they get ready for bed and my husband and I hang out more. It's, you know, welcome to COVID life. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like a, a fun place to live. <laughs> How old are your kids now? So my daughter's turning seven and my son's turning four. They're three years and three days apart. <laughs> oh, such, such fun ages. Yeah. Did you set an intention for 2021? Did you like pick a word or set an intention? You know, I think for 2021, my honest goal is to see that the, sw- the pendulum that swung in 2020, which was to like freeze, pause, unschedule yourself, get off the airplane and be present for your family. I want to find that equilibrium. So the pendulum swung really hard to one end, but it was a really you know, interesting wake up call for me personally on how much I was missing with my kids. And I've really gotten to know them this year and I don't want it to swing back. So I want to find that happy equilibrium. What is something our audience would be very surprised to learn about you? Oh, geez. I went to law school for two weeks. (laughs) (laughs) What happened? (laughs) So I moved to New York. I had that you know, amazing job at Federated, but I still had that itch in my head that success was doctor, lawyer, investment banker, took my LSATs, had a go in away party from New York City, went to law school and two weeks in called my dad and was like, I think you're gonna have to take that sweatshirt off. My old boss like gave me a promotion, quote unquote, like raise so I could come back with my head held high. But I just, I knew it wasn't my path. What did your dad say? Were they okay with it? (laughs) Shockingly, yes. And all of that perception of what I thought they wanted for me wasn't even true. (laughs) They just wanted me to be happy. It's what every parent wants. That takes a lot of courage to walk away from law school. Have you done that before? Have you always been that type of of person? Because I remember when I was little, there were instances in my childhood where I would say no to things that just didn't feel right. Yeah. You know, looking back, there were some like bold moments in my life, like that one when I went to the dean's office and was like, so (laughs) that was terrifying. And I would say another time was when I graduated from college in Pittsburgh, and I was fortunate enough to get this job, this job in New York. I got in a U-Haul by myself and drove to Hoboken because I couldn't afford to live in New York City. And I actually had to ask the company Federated to find me a roommate because I didn't even know anyone. <laughs> like I no, knew no one. And they found someone in my training program for me. But it was just like, felt like the right thing to do. Now looking back, I'm like, man, I had some balls. Sweet. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have a favorite mantra or quote that you live your life by? My daughter and I have been saying a lot, comparison is the killer of joy. And I think like we do it a lot. We constantly say it with things that we see or do. And like, you know, we're also sharing with our kids, like we see things and we're like, oh, look how awesome that is. And then we're like, no, look how awesome this is. (laughs) So important. Is there something that you wish you knew sooner in your career that you know now? Yes. It's all about your team. Like there's no I in team. There's 
as an entrepreneur and founder, you think it's about your business decisions and like the things you're building and creating. It's the people. It's literally the people, the people that invest in you, the people that you hire, the people you surround yourself with. That is so true. And speaking of team and lively, what do you have coming up this year for lively that we should all know about and get excited about? Yeah. So we have some really exciting launches coming. Um, we have a new partner we're announcing at the end of this month. Um, we also have more sustainable launches coming out that we're really excited about within swimwear and active. Um, but most importantly, we're just really excited to continue to build the foundation of what the brand stands for, which is passion, purpose, and confidence, and continue to see our ambassador program grow, which is now 140,000 women strong. Wow. So are you still growing that ambassador program? Can anyone choose to join? Yes. Anyone can join. You go to wearlively.com, look for our community nav point and sign on up. I know that I definitely need lots of new loungewear. So I'm going to be heading over to your website too. (laughs) Amazing. What are you grateful for each day? You know, this time I'm especially, I'm so grateful to be in a home with my family, like not to be alone. And I, my heart goes out to so many people that are quarantined by themselves and just realizing human interaction is literally the lifeline. It's our oxygen, hugs, kisses, smiles. It's our oxygen. So, you know, one thing that I've been doing, which was small, but when I go on my runs, I wave really high and I, I smile like as big as I can. And every stranger I come in contact with, I'm like essentially forcing them to interact with me with my aggression of like my high and my smile, but like you feel it. And so I think it's being with people. Do people engage back with you? Have you gotten to at least be able to have conversations with neighbors and strangers or people you may not have known before? Yes, especially the people that you never see smile. Sometimes it takes like two days of waving and then all of a sudden you see the eye smile and you're like, yes, I got you. (laughs) That's like me. We just moved to this neighborhood in Florida. And when I go take a walk, I just wave at people to try to start conversations and meet people and engage because it can be so isolating just being home. And Courtney and I were talking about this yesterday where I feel like we're on nine hours a day of Zoom calls and we don't have that human interaction and touch, which can be really hard. Yeah, yeah. There's this Sex in the City episode, which I always think is hilarious, when Charlotte's like, you can't have everything right. You know, she's in love with her husband and her kids. And and that's how I often feel. It's just like, wow, everything is feels really great, but there's tons of mistakes and heartaches along the way. That's part of it, you know. Another great thing to live by is without bad days, there are good ones. Mm-hmm. So true. What does being an entrepreneurista mean to you? number one is the joy of figuring it out. That's what we are as entrepreneurs is like, we don't see the world as problems. We see it as puzzles. So I think being really excited to solve and build, figure out things and, and have an impact on the world is number one. And number two, it's being a role model to the daughters of tomorrow, especially with the recession, you know, affecting so many women, like really paying it forward. I absolutely love that. And we are so honored you took the time out of your day to sit down and share your incredible entrepreneurship journey with our audience. So thank you so much for being here and sharing your story. Where can everyone find you, follow you, and of course, by your beautiful and amazing products. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So Lively is wearlively.com, W-E-A-R, lively.com, and at wearlively on Instagram. And I'm at the underscore Michelle Grant. Wonderful. Thank you again for being here. I'm Stephanie. And I'm Courtney. And this is the best business meeting we've ever had. 
You can connect with us at socialflyny.com and follow us on Instagram at entrepreneurs. Check out all our latest episodes at entrepreneurspodcast.com. Thanks for listening. Thank you.